Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Unresectable HCC, an Emerging Era of Combination Therapy, a Clinical Convergence, is provided by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and is supported by Medical Education Grants from ASI Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merck & Company, Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Richard Finn, a professor of medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles, California. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the continuing education activity entitled Stronger Together, an Emerging Era of Combination Regimens for Unresectable HCC, a Clinical Convergence. Joining me today for this activity are two colleagues and friends, Dr. Amit Singhal, a hepatologist from the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, and Dr. Mark Yoshwin, a medical oncologist from John Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. When we think about treating with systemic drugs in liver cancer, the backbone and the majority of drugs that are used today tend to target the VEGF pathway. Majority of drugs are VEGF kinase inhibitors, so they hit the VEGF receptor as well as other kinases. Ramucirumab, a monoclonal antibody to the VEGF receptor, is also approved. And more recently, we saw the approval of Bevacizumab, an antibody to VEGF, approved in combination with uh, Tezolizumab. So in 2008, we saw the approval of serafinib based on the SHARP study. This was a hallmark study because for the first time, we saw we can improve survival and advance liver cancer with systemic treatment. Here you see the SHARP study done in North America and Europe and the Asia-Pacific Companion study done in the Asia-Pacific region. And the hazard ratio for survival, 0.69, 0.68, very comparable to two, between the two studies. And we saw for the first time an improvement in OS from eight months to just under 11 months with serafinib. Now, importantly, this study concentrated on the child PUA population like most phase three studies. Serafinib did not induce an objective response Really, it improved survival by delaying progression, and it had a very predictable side effect profile with the most common things being hand-foot-skin syndrome, uh, GI toxicity and diarrhea, fatigue, and anorexia. Now, for over a decade, serafinib was the standard of care in frontline. That changed with the REFLEX study, which evaluated lenvantinib, and you can see here lenvantinib is a very potent VEGF-TKI kinase inhibitor more potent than serafinib, and the FGFR family is also targeted very efficiently by lenvantinib, unlike serafinib, and FGFs are felt to be important drivers for proliferation in liver cancer, as well as mediating resistance to angiogenesis. So the REFLEX study design is shown here. It was an open-label study, again, taking patients who are child PUA, Barcelona stage B or C. This study had a unique exclusion criteria set in which they excluded patients who had 50% of their liver involved by tumor, so a very large tumor burden or bile duct invasion, as well as patients that had invasion of the main portal vein, so the extrahepatic portal vein. That was excluded, not because we felt the drug would not be active in that group, but this study originated in Japan and the practice pattern there does not use systemic treatment for those patients, at least historically. And lenvantinib was dosed by weight, something that's different about this kinase inhibitor against the others, and this was open-label versus serafinib. The primary endpoint was overall survival. 
Now, the study uniquely was powered to show superiority, but also non-inferiority. And it did meet this non-inferiority endpoint. And here you see lenvantinib had a survival of about 13.6 months, serafinib 12.3 months. That was a hazard ratio of 0.92. But the upper limit of the confidence interval crossed one. But 1.06 was still within the bound of the non-inferiority endpoint. Uh, that endpoint being uh, 1.08. So based on this data, lenvantinib did get approval. Now, lenvantinib did meet secondary endpoints and essentially doubled progression-free survival compared to serafinib 3.7 versus 7.4 months by the modified resist criteria, which takes into account the enhancement size of enhancing tumor in the liver. And it also induced responses. And here, looking at independent review, both by modified resist and conventional resist, we see lenvantinib had response rates of 41% versus 19% by resist, and serafinib 12.4% versus 6.5% by resist. So now we had a kinase inhibitor that was non-inferior for OS, but did meet important secondary endpoints, and also had some important toxicity differences. Here you can see lenvantinib has more hypertension, higher grade, and more frequent. However, it has less hand-foot syndrome as serafinib, less frequent and less intense. Other toxicities tended to be the same, such as GI toxicity, anorexia, weight loss, and again, reflecting its VEGF component, more proteinuria with lenvantinib. Now, there's been a lot of interest in the immune system in targeting cancer. While this uh, diagram is somewhat complex, I want to call our attention to the main drugs that have been approved in cancer medicine that are involved in regulating the immune system or, or interfering with it. This includes antibodies mostly that target the interaction between PDL1 and PD1, both on antigen-presenting cells and on tumor cells. This signaling between these molecules actually tells the immune system to ignore the tumor, and therefore by interacting this signaling with antibodies, we then allow the immune system to attack the tumor. Also, on the priming set side of uh, the immune system, antibodies such as ipilimumab or trimilumumab, which interfere with CTLA-4, uh, are approved, and therefore, again, preventing the downregulation of immune cells uh, and allowing their priming. So the first data we have in uh, liver cancer with one of the PD-1 antibodies was nivolumab. Uh, this came from the Checkmate 040 study from my colleague here in Los Angeles, Anthony El Cahori. And this study led to the acceler accelerated approval of nivolumab in second-line liver cancer. And that gave us a response rate of 15% with a median duration of response of six, over 16 months. And you can see that responses were seen across etiologies of liver cancer, and further data showed that uh, measuring PDL1 expression also did not correlate with response. Now, the requirement for accelerated approval was do a, a confirmatory study, and that was the Checkmate 459 study, an open-label study of nivolumab versus serafinib in the frontline setting. The primary endpoint of this study was overall survival, again, in child PUA patients. Unfortunately, this was a negative study. Nivolumab had a survival of 16.4 months, the longest survival we've seen in liver cancer. Serafinib, about 15 months. Again, the longest survival we've seen with serafinib in this population 
However, the p-value is 0 0.075. The upper limit of the constants interval here was 1.02. Actually, this is uh, even less than the, what we saw in the Lenvantin and Reflex study. However, this was a superiority study, not non-inferiority. Now, progression-free survival was not significantly improved uh, with nivolumab. And the challenge sometimes with immuno-oncology agents is that the median progression-free survival does not necessarily pick up what we see sometimes, which is a tail of the curve, a subset of patients who get a long-term benefit. And this study confirmed actually what we saw in the phase two study, a response rate of 15% with single-agent nivolumab versus 7% with serafinib. Now, this drug still has accelerated approval. Uh, and, and one of the reasons may be that we did not reach the overall survival endpoint is that many patients, and you see here IO and investigational agents, about 30% of patients went on to receive other immuno-oncology agents in the serafinib arm, an unintentional, so to speak, crossover. However, nivolumab is very well tolerated. You can see here all grade toxicities for nivolumab in blue, in red, uh, serafinib, uh, all grade are lighter, higher grades are darker, and you can see by and large, the toxicity profile really does favor nivolumab. So in order to improve on this response rate of 15%, to improve, get a positive survival readout, uh, we need to either identify a biomarker for these patients or look at combinations. So one of the combinations that looks very promising has been the combination of VEGF inhibition and PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibition. And our our uh, understanding of VEGF inhibition and how it affects the tumor has evolved from not just affecting the vasculature, but by affecting the vasculature, we can change the inflammatory milieu around a tumor, bring in antigen-presenting cells and uh, CD8 T cells, which then, with a drug like atezolizumab, can reverse the breaks on the immune system and allow a tumor attack. This was tested in the I Am Brave 150 study, which we published in the New England Journal of Medicine in May of this year. And this data led to the approval of Tezobev for frontline liver cancer. Again, a very standard design, advanced liver cancer, child PUA randomized to a Tezobev, given IV every three weeks, versus serafinib. Uh, and this was an open label study, uh, two to one randomization. It was very well balanced. And you can see here, balanced by all etiologies being represented, as well as the fact that this was a fairly high uh, advanced cohort with over 70% of patients in each arm having macrovascular invasion or extrapatic spread. And you can see here, 80% of patients had Barcelona C disease, and about 15% in each arm had intermediate disease. So Barcelona B that had progressed on TACE or were not candidates for TACE. Also, patients on this study required an upper endoscopy to screen for varices within six months of starting. And you can see that it was well balanced, about a quarter of patients in each arm had varices. And here you see the numbers, 11 and 14% actually had them treated at baseline. This is the primary endpoint of overall survival, a significant improvement in OS with a hazard ratio of 0.58. The study was stopped at about eight and a half months because of the early and maintained separation of the curve. So we don't have the median OS with a Tezobev. But needless to say, serafinib performed as expected. And this hazard ratio of 0.58 is the first time we saw an improvement in survival versus serafinib since 2008.
And unlike in checkpoint 459, we see that this combination actually improves PFS, 4.3 months to 6.8 months, has a ratio of 0.59. With this combination, looking at an independent review of resist, 27% confirmed response rate versus 12% with serafinib, 5.5% of those patients were complete responses. So no evidence of disease with treatment. Now, the regimen actually is very well tolerated. You can see all adverse events equal between arms, grade three, four events equal before each arms, between arms, grade five events equal, if not a little higher with serafinib. Serious adverse events were a little higher with a Tezobev, 38 versus 30%. However, even with that in mind, only 7% of patients had to stop both Tezo and Bev. Whereas in the serafinib arm, 10% of patients had to stop treatment because of an adverse event. 15% of patients had to drop either the Atezo or Bev, depending on the toxicity. And when we look at toxicity, we can see that things, again, generally favor Atezo Bev. The side effect profile is really similar to either drug alone, hypertension being more common with Atezo Bev, uh, whereas we look at other toxicities such as diarrhea, hand foot skin syndrome, uh, anorexia, these tend to occur more frequently a serafinib and with higher intensity. Proteinuria, again, a sign of VEGF inhibition, more frequent with a Tezobev. And here, looking at treatment-related adverse events, a very similar pattern. Uh, and really, I think the way I would characterize this is things that the patient would generally notice and complain about occur more frequently in higher intensity with serafinib. Now, here we see the quality of life readout from this study, very favorable. A delay in quality of life was markedly delayed. Serafinib, they delay in 3.6 months, whereas Tezobev, 11.2 months. And there's other combinations being looked at of VEGF receptor inhibitors, such as lenvantinib in combination with pembrolizumab. Uh, here we see an overall response rate of 36% in the single-arm study. Uh, and the toxicity from this regimen really looks, again, similar to single-agent lenvantinib or pembrolizumab. Also being looked at now in frontline, but from a second line uh, phase two study, tremulumumab and dervalumab, the CTLA-4 and pdl one antibody presented at ASCO recently showed a response rate of 24% in the high dosing cohort and a survival of 18.7 months in second line. And this is now being evaluated in frontline. And Dr. Yarshwin will talk about another combination, ipilumumab and nivolumab, now being looked at in frontline. So if we look at ongoing studies, we have studies looking at TKIs, lenvantinib and pembrolizumab, and cosmic, which is atezolizumab and cabazantinib, and Himalaya looking at nivolumab and tremulumumab, and the Checkmate 90W, which is nivolumab and ipi. So now I'll hand it over to my colleague, Mark, who will talk us through some cases and uh, data in second line. Mark? Uh, thanks for that introduction. So in the second line setting, we have three targeted therapies that all uh, inhibit VEGF signaling. We have uh, regorafenib, cabozantinib, and ramaciramab. And then we have a number of immunotherapies as well. All of these therapies were approved in a second line setting after prior treatment with serafinib, uh, which has made the second line uh, discussion much more challenging uh, now that we have other options in the frontline setting. Regorafenib, uh, cabozantinib, and ramaciramab all of them were approved on the basis of large phase three trials that showed overall survival benefit uh, over placebo. 
Um, I wouldn't compare the hazard ratios of these three trials directly because the populations were actually a bit different. Um, importantly, in the regorafenib trial, uh, these were patients who tolerated uh, serafinib in the frontline setting. Uh, the cabozantinib study was a little bit more uh, permissive. It included patients who had been treated uh, with either one or two prior therapies um, and included patients who hadn't tolerated serafinib, and it also showed an overall survival benefit. Uh, I think uh, ramaciramab is uh, really our only drug uh, in HCC that has uh, an indication based on a biomarker. It's only approved for patients with an AFP uh, over 400, and that's because uh, really when an initial trial of ramaciramab was done, there was no benefit to ramaciramab in patients with an AFP less than 400. Uh, and so uh, the indication is uh, strictly for patients with an overall, with uh, AFP over 400. Um, and uh, a number of immunotherapies have been studied in the second line setting. Uh, I want to review quickly our evidence for uh, anti-PD-1 therapy. So pembrolizumab and nivolumab were both approved in the second line setting after prior serafinib based on uh, single arm phase two data showing that these therapies were safe and had response rates in a range of 15 to 17%. The approval uh, was granted as long as the companies performed uh, subsequent studies at these agents. And so pembrolizumab uh, was um, in a, a phase three trial versus placebo that was led uh, by my colleague here, uh, Dr. Rich Finn. And uh, this was a negative study. Um, the, the pembrolizumab was, was safe. Uh, safety and tolerability looked similar to what was seen uh, in the single arm phase two study. Uh, there clearly were responses, a response rate of around 18% uh, in the study. Um, uh, and when we look at uh, survival and progression-free survival, uh, both of these endpoints, which were the primary, uh, co-primary endpoints of the study, uh, definitely favored pembrolizumab uh, with p-value for overall survival of less than 0.05, uh, but that did not meet the pre-specified um, uh, primary endpoint uh, for OS. And so this is a negative study, uh, but it nonetheless remains an option for patients in the second-line setting uh, after prior uh, serafinib. Um, and as you can see, there really were no subgroups that particularly benefited from pembrolizumab in this study uh, more than other subgroups. Uh, everything trended in the right direction. Uh, and then uh, I'll mention quickly that uh, there is also the approval of nivolumab plus ipilimumab. So nivolumab is an anti-PD-1 therapy. Uh, ipilimumab is a uh, CTLA-4 uh, uh, inhibitor. Um, and uh, the, the manufacturer in this case conducted a phase two study where different uh, doses of ipilimumab and nivolumab were studied. And in this uh, phase two study, um, there really was the best survival for patients who received the high dose of uh, ipilimumab, ipilimumab-3 and nivolumab-1. Um, and the FDA actually granted accelerated approval of this combination. I think this is adding to the evidence that anti-CTLA-4 therapy has some role in HCC uh, because the response rate here, 32%, is uh, clearly higher than PD-1 uh, as monotherapy, where the response rate is closer to 15%. Um, and whether this has a role after prior bevacizumab and atezolizumab is a matter of some debate, but there probably are uh, some responders to this that don't respond to PD-1 or PDL one uh, as monotherapy. As uh, my colleague, Dr. Finn, uh, mentioned earlier, this is now uh, moved into a phase three study in the frontline setting 
uh, versus serafinib. Uh, many patients, about 32%, had reductions in tumor volume. Really, there didn't seem to be any difference whether patients were virally infected or not, or uh, PDL1 positive or not. Um, so, just to summarize our section, uh, we have a default frontline option now bevacizumab and atezolizumab, but multiple other uh, therapies uh, that are an investigation in the frontline setting. And the second line, I think there are some people who would argue that there's still a role for our historical first line. Uh, treatment options such as serafinib or lenvatinib. Um, other people would argue that we really should be moving towards uh, drugs that were studied in a second-line setting, even if none of them were studied after uh, bevacizumab and atezolizumab. Uh, I will now turn the uh, talk over to my colleague, Dr. Amit Singhal, who's going to uh, talk about tailoring treatment options in HCC. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so as you heard, um, I'm really going to be trying to put this together in terms of how do we weigh all of these different treatment options um, that we've just heard about. So just to summarize, um, you know, we've really had a lot of progress over the last, you know, five years. Um, just thinking five years ago, we had um, a single frontline agent in serafinib. Um, and you can see that we've had an explosion now of multiple options, both in the first line as well as in the second line. Now, when we think of this, um, you know, we, we really talked about, um, you know, a one treatment fits all approach. We think of these um, drugs and we say that we're going to put all um, patients in the front line on a single therapy or, um, you know, taking a look at patients and putting them all through a second line therapy. But this really, you know, doesn't get to the way that we think about our patients when we see um, them in front of us in clinic. And, you know, there's been a big push in the field in terms of a precision medicine initiative. Um, i.e. finding biomarkers that can really say that this person should receive this treatment because they are going to have the best treatment uh, response on there. Now, you heard from Mark that we have a single biomarker in AFP, but we don't have biomarkers that actually help us choose between therapies. Um, and that's really one of the areas that we want to push forward as we think through the next several years. Now, just taking a look at some of the targeted therapies that we have available, you can see them listed here, um, and you can see their mechanism of action. And um, through here, you can see that there's some subtle differences in terms of the receptors they hit. For example, bevacizumab being a pure VEGF, you can see serafinib hitting multiple pathways, and you heard from Rich where lymvatinib was um, a more potent agent and hit other pathways. So for example, it also acted upon the FGF receptor. And by taking a look at these different pathways, this may be able to give us some sense of patients in which these therapies could be used. So for example, there is a, an exploratory analysis that takes a look at lymvatinib and takes a look at the, the FGF receptor. And those patients who had higher FGF receptor levels actually had a better response to lymvatinib. And similarly, you can see, you know, cabozantinib has unique mechanisms of action in terms of CMET and Axel that are not hit upon in terms of some of the other therapies. Now, while this is a nice theoretical phenomenon, this isn't something that we use in clinical practice, but at least gives us an idea of how we can move forward in terms of leveraging mechanism of action as we think through precision medicine um, initiatives. Now, when we think of other treatment response biomarkers, this is a nice review that talked about um, all of the different treatment response biomarkers that could be of interest and put them into four different buckets. And you can see these categories can include 
um, number one, tumor and immunologic factors. The second category being tumor mutations, microsatellite instability. And as you'll hear, um, you know, there's been incredible interest in tumor mutational burden, MSI high status, which um, actually is an approval across different tumor types, but unfortunately tends to be rare in HCC. Third bucket being circulating factors, including circulating immune cells, um, soluble factors such as TGF-beta, um, extracellular vesicles, once again, an area of interest. And then, of course, host factors, male sex, older age, gut microbiome. Um, once again, not something that's really been um, that we can't use in clinical practice, but something that is being evaluated at this time. So taking a look at PDL1 expression, because I think this is probably one that's been of the most interest, we can see that um, you know, among 45 approvals through April 2019 across tumor type, PDL1 status was predictive in just over one quarter and not predictive in just over one half of different um, trials, and then not evaluated in about 15 to 20%. And you can see when you take a look at this figure, there's heterogeneity um, in terms of um, uh, um, this being a potential treatment response biomarker across different tumor types. And part of the reason why this may be the case is that there's actually heterogeneity, even when you take a look across studies in terms of the thresholds, the types of cells expressing PDL1 that have been evaluated and the companion diagnostics. And so there's different um, ways that this has been looked at across these different cancers. However, when you take a look at HCC, you can see that actually this is done in a teal color. Um, and so has not been approved in HCC. So most of the studies actually have not shown that PDL1 status is, um, is predictive uh, in our current approved immunotherapies. So given the fact that we don't have these more nuanced approaches, we've really been dependent on clinical factors as we've been trying to think through different treatment selection factors. And so, for example, when we think of targeted therapies, and you think of the historic um, you know, comparison between serafinib and lenvatinib, we really are um, dependent on, for example, differences in terms of inclusion and exclusion criteria for the clinical trials. Once again, you heard from, um, from Rich that the REFLECT trial excluded patients with greater than 50% liver involvement, excluded patients with extrahepatic main portal vein invasion, and excluded patients with bile duct invasion. And so if you see some of those patients, you may be more likely to use serafinib We've also heard some differences in terms of um, the AE profile between serafinib and lamvatinib, and many of us use um, these differences when we are choosing between these two agents. And I think the other big difference that's highlighted in red here is that serafinib actually has much more real-world effectiveness data behind it, and so we can use it in extended patient populations with some safety data, including patients with child QB cirrhosis. But these, you know, gross clinical features are truly how we've been deciding between the agents that have been available on market. Likewise, I think we're going to have to use some of these clinical factors when we are thinking about atezolizumab and bevacizumab in the frontline setting. When you think about um, the, the um, I am Brave 150 trial, um, here you can see the schematic, you can see some of the exclusion criteria that were listed, and you can see that patients with autoimmune disease, history of transplant were excluded, um, incompletely treated high-risk varices, um, these patients were excluded. Once again, you heard from Rich that all patients were required to undergo an EGD. And I think that this is one of the most important price selection factors as we um, use this uh, treatment regimen um, in clinical practice is this high risk of bleeding in the setting of bevacizumab. We know that cirrhosis is a high-risk state. We know bevacizumab can increase that risk. And so this is really very important as we think 
um, of using this in our patients. Um, likewise, we know that um, liver function is very important. The trial excluded patients with moderate to severe ascites, history of hepatic encephalopathy. Um, and then finally, um, other risk factors for GI bleeding, including chronic daily treatment with NSAIDs, as well as um, significant thrombocytopenia with a platelet count less than 75,000. I think all of these factors were used in the clinical trial and I think have to at least be considered when we apply this in our clinical practice. Now, beyond that, one of the questions that I um, continue to see is that, um, is there a difference in terms of viral etiology? And does this need to be considered um, when we think about using um, uh, atezolizumab and bevacizumab or other um, checkpoint inhibitors um, in clinical practice? And I think that this was a nice study that actually looked at this. And we see that when you take a look at patients who actually have hepatitis B, hepatitis C, or non-viral etiologies, we see no difference in terms of the immunologic background or the risk of actually having um, a, a response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. And likewise, when you take a look at the clinical trials, I think that this really is not a good treatment selection biomarker in terms of looking at response, um, nor actually in terms of taking a look at AEs. And so really, I think viral status doesn't really play into our um, uh, uh, selection factors. I'm going to next go to a patient case that I think highlights how we can think about um, applying atezolizumab and bevacizumab in our clinical practice. So this patient is a 56-year-old male, hepatitis C-related cirrhosis, um, who was treated um, uh, for their hepatitis C and achieved sustained virological response. Unfortunately, the patient was lost to follow-up, presented two years later symptomatically, um, but otherwise feels healthy, good liver function, child PUA, as you can see here, elevated alpha-feta protein. And unfortunately, the imaging shows multifocal bilobar HCC, um, with the largest lesion being just under 10 centimeters and has vascular invasion. And so given the fact that this patient has vascular invasion, fairly large multifocal bilobar disease, uh, the patient was referred for systemic therapy. And so as we think of the next step here, um, this patient was referred um, to have an upper endoscopy. Um, and this is very important because this patient on upper endoscopy, despite having good liver function, was actually found to have large varices, red whale signs, um, and so really high risk of bleeding. And so this is a patient where, once again, highlighting the fact that this is a very important selection biomarker uh, clinically, and we would not use a tezobev in this patient until the varices are um, eradicated and this patient is lower risk of, of bleeding. And so this is probably someone that we would use instead um, one of our other targeted agents, um, whether that's serafinib or levantinib in the frontline setting. Now, when we think of um, uh, now moving away from this first line setting into the second line setting, once again, you have heard from Mark that we have multiple agents approved in the second line setting, all of these approved after serafinib. But as you've heard, we've really shifted to atizolizumab and bevacizumab being um, the preferred frontline therapy in most patients with advanced HCC. And so the question is, can we really apply all of these after a TZOBEV being used in the frontline setting? Now, at least in, in my opinion, I've tried to color code how I think of this after a TZO and BEV in the frontline setting. Um, I think once again, you've acted upon the PD-1, PD-L1 um, access with the tizolizumab. And so it, it, at least to me, doesn't make sense to use single agent PD-1 inhibition um, in the second line setting. So Nevo and Pembro would fall much lower on my list. 
Um, otherwise, when you think of um, using bevacizumab, once again, you've acted um, on the VEGF axis um, uh, as a single agent. And so using gramacirumab acting upon the receptor, once again, lower um, likelihood of response in, in is at least um, theoretically. Um, and then I put regorafenib also with a little bit of caution because as you heard um, you know, uh, from, from Mark, regorafenib was really used in patients who tolerated serafinib in the frontline setting um, as, as a safety marker. And so at least in, in, you know, is the way that we use it in our clinical practice, we continue to use this in patients who have received prior serafinib. And so, um, you know, at least what, the way that we approach this is that we have used um, frontline and secondline agents, otherwise in a, in a big box um, that we can consider after a tezobeb. And so it, for most patients who have received a tezobeb, have progression or intolerance, we would consider um, serafinib, lumvatinib, cabozantinib, or once again, the, the IO doublet, Nevo and Ipi, um, as possible agents um, in the second line setting. But something else that we must consider as we use um, these immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, once again, you've heard that these are very well tolerated, very good quality of life in most patients. However, it is important to remember that these can have um, uh, immune-mediated adverse events. Um, and you can see several of these listed here um, in the figure. Um, and even though these are rare, they can be quite serious um, if and when they occur. And so it's important that we recognize these early and we act upon them and either hold the immune checkpoint inhibitor or start steroids um, if and when uh, needed. The other thing that I'd say is that it's also very important for us to consider that, um, that these can have very important consequences if used in patients who have received any transplant. Um, so let alone liver transplant, but also kidney transplant, heart transplant, lung transplant, et cetera. These have been associated with high rates of graft loss um, and death in these patients and should not be considered in patients um, uh, with a prior transplant. So in summary for this um, uh, section, there is a strong desire um, and a need for biomarkers to help with patient selection. Although unfortunately, this is, this is an area of need. We don't really have anything right now. And so we're really forced to rely on clinical characteristics and differences in clinical trial inclusion and exclusion criteria in the interim. As you've already heard, atezobev has shown superior survival compared to TKI-based therapy. But um, once again, careful patient selection is critical, and TKI-based therapy does continue to play a role in, in some of these patients. And then finally, we must continue to monitor patients on checkpoint inhibitor therapy for rare, albeit potentially serious, adverse events so we can act um, if and when necessary uh, when these occur. With that, um, I'm going to hand it back to my colleague, um, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Yarshwin, uh, to go through um, a clinical case uh, to wrap up our session. Mark? Um, thanks for that uh, handoff. Um, so I'm going to present a case of a 70-year-old a retired college professor named Bill uh, from my uh, from my clinic who um, has no history of liver cirrhosis and is found to have abnormal liver enzymes on routine blood work. And uh, tonight's a special night because Bill was actually able to join us here uh, on our chat. So, uh, Bill, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Bill. Hi, hi everyone. So, uh, you know. Bill, maybe you could just give us a sense, you know, how did you actually find out that you had uh, liver cancer? Actually, it was just pure luck. I had my annual physical and the doctor 
found raised levels of alkaline phosphatase, and then from there went to ultrasound, CT scan, MRI, and finally the biopsy, which confirmed everything that was there. But lucky. I had no symptoms whatsoever. Right. And uh, the scan on the right is from uh, Bill's scan, as you can see, has a, an eight, had an eight centimeter uh, by six centimeter mass in his liver. Um, and he had very good uh, liver function. His bilirubin was normal. His synthetic function was excellent. His viral studies were negative. Um, his AFP was, uh, was within the normal range, which we know is a good prognostic uh, feature in this cancer. Um, and, uh, and actually, this was determined to be resectable, and he underwent a, a resection uh, for this cancer. And Bill, how was your experience with surgery? And um, in particular, how was your recovery from it? Um, I'd never really been in the hospital before, so um, I didn't know what to expect. I, at that time, I just thought that if you got liver cancer, well, that was basically the end. And so when you're going to operate, it wasn't a big deal. And except I'd never been completely under before, I thought that might be my last view of the world. Um, the recovery was not as bad as I thought. It was painful, but I remember thanking the doctors afterwards for feeling no pain. And my wife said I kept on pressing that bedside button like crazy, which is probably why I didn't feel any pain. But um, um, it took a couple months to get back where I felt normal again. It was a big scar. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, your cancer came back after your, your surgery. This is your, your scan here on the right after surgery. The audience, you can see that there's a, uh, a resection that happened. You can even see the surgical clips. And then there's some, uh, some areas uh, in multiple regions of the liver uh, consistent with recurrence. Um, uh, Bill, how did you actually uh, find out that your cancer had returned? Were you having symptoms at this point? Uh, it was through these scans. I'm sorry. Okay. Through the was scans? I, Were you having symptoms at all, or did you feel well at this point? Through, through the I No, I had no symptoms, no nothing. I went back, and the, the surgeon said, very disappointed, saying I didn't get it all, and then made a phone call. <laughs> and okay. so it was. he was disappointed, too. He thought he had it. And if I recall, this is about the time that we met, um, which now was November of 2018. Yes. Is that right? And, uh, you know, as the audience that was the here. Same, the same day that I found out. I remember that day. That was exactly the same day I found out. He called over to you, and at 11, I saw you at 2. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, today, if you were going to receive standard therapy, we likely would have offered you bevacizumab and atezolizumab as a frontline option. But uh, back then in 2018, our options were more limited. And we discussed, if I remember, um, standard TKI therapy in the frontline setting or, uh, uh, or a clinical trial, which is what uh, we opted for. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, why you chose the clinical trial? Um, <laughs> again, I, I sort of thought liver cancer was 
going to kill me anyway, and I figured if I participated in this, it might help someone else in the future by you doing the research that would would help others. So it, it really wasn't a choice. I remember looking at my wife and nodding, and she nodded back and said, yeah, go for it. So you en enrolled in a, a phase three trial um, uh, called Himalaya that was randomized. So one arm was serafinib, which was the standard of care, versus dervalumab, a pdl one immunotherapy, versus dervalumab plus uh, charmolimumab, which is anti-CTLA-4, as we learned about. And you were randomized to just the standard of care after all the paperwork that we did. How, how did you feel about that decision? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I remember <laughs> you were disappointed. My wife was angry, and uh, I was thinking, well, better than the placebo. But um, <laughs> it was um, I really wasn't. I didn't know what to expect either way, so I I really wasn't that concerned. Like, okay, I'm getting something that's supposed supposed to be good. Hmm. At that time, I wasn't even aware that there were that many treatment options available. And um, you went with the serafinib as part of the trial. And how did that treatment go, the pills that you were on at the time? <laughs> Not very well. I, I remember reading the side effects, and I had every one of them, I think. It was not pleasant. OK. And you know, unfortunately, even the first scan, if I recall, showed that the cancer was actually getting worse rather than stable or better. And so at that point, we, we discussed actually other options. And again, this was um, really Correct. Uh, back in 20 early, very beginning of 2019. We didn't have all the options we have today. And we talked about uh, starting immunotherapy with uh, nivolumab. And uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, what your thoughts were about starting immunotherapy. What were your concerns at the time? Uh, by that time, I had, I mean, stuff was start, starting to come out about immunotherapy in general to treat lots of things. And I always thought it was the idea to take stem cells, accelerate them, put them back in the body. And so started reading stuff about this and said, these things are this has really come a long way. I was really pleased and actually eager to get with it. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what happened next. <laughs> I had no side effects from it at all. And the tumors started, kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller each scan I got. So it was, it was actually very exciting. It's exciting for me as oh. well. You know, um, as our audience knows, uh, you know, the response rate to single agent PD one is is probably less than twenty percent, and um, to have a response is uh, always a great thing. And in this case, uh, Bill went on to actually have a complete response, which is. Um, even rare, where he had complete regression of all the lesions that you see. Um, and uh, his bone disease also completely regressed, although it's very hard to assess bony lesions because um, the bone doesn't always completely heal. 
And uh, you've been on immunotherapy now since uh, the beginning of 2019. Is that right? I have um, been, yes. Um... That's great. And, you know, my last question for you is, uh, it's not every day that uh, we get to hear from our, our patients uh, this way. So um, what advice would you have for other uh, physicians who are treating patients with liver cancer? Um, I would advise them to have someone present at the appointments. Well, that And that's actually another way that the COVID has affected me. My wife, who happens to be a, a research librarian, was with me and took notes during the meetings. And because as a patient, when you hear some of these words, like even initially, you've got cancer, your mind focuses on that and doesn't pay attention to some of the details you're getting. Um, so she was there with me doing this, taking notes, as you know, asking lots of questions um, because she knew a lot more about liver cancer than I did after she found out that I had it. Um, so having someone there as sort of a medical interpreter and advocate for you, I think is crucial and i think that's true even during these covid times because even now she can't go to my appointments i know she would love to be there and sometimes i i come home and i say oh that's right i forgot to tell you this i forgot to tell you this and because i i wasn't paying strict attention to some of the things that were said because sometimes the information is uh so compressed or so dense that you forget some of it. So I would say that's a very important thing is to have someone else there with you. And uh, I think the doctor should in, sort of insist on that. Yeah. And, you know, we, Done. we appreciate having, uh, you know, having your wife at those meetings definitely helped with our conversations. I know she's been a, a great advocate uh, for you the whole way. Um, so uh, thanks for, um, sharing your story with all of us. So, uh, wow, what a special treat to have Bill with us. Uh, I think all of us who treat liver cancer patients are inspired by patients like yourself, and that's what has kept us going. You know, Bill, there was 10 years that all we had was serafinib, and it helped people. There's no doubt it's still an important drug in the management of patients. Oh, yeah. But when we see patients like you that have these dramatic responses, that's very inspiring and what drives us, I think, to, to keep looking for new things. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by AKH Incorporated, Advancing Knowledge in Healthcare, and RMEI Medical Education, LLC, and is supported by medical education grants from ASI Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merck and & Company Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.